Hello, I'm Conor McReynolds and welcome to another episode of The Dinner Party. Each week I interview a fantastic guest to learn all about their dream dinner party. I want to know who they would invite, where they would host their party and what they would cook for their guests. This week I'm chatting to someone who I've known personally and admired professionally for over 25 years, theatre writer and composer Paul Boyd. Paul has written over 20 stage musicals and his work has toured all over the world. He's written for families and adults, he's written traditional stage performances and even water-based shows. He's creative, he's hilarious and he's absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to hear all about Paul's dream dinner party. So without further ado, here is the brilliant Paul Boyd. Paul Boyd, hello. How are you? Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? We're good. Everything is good. The sun is shining. I don't know when people will be listening to this, but it's it's about 200 degrees in London today. So <laughs> yes. um, I'm very glad this isn't a video blog of any kind. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I'd, I'm quite frankly disgraceful today. I'm sort of sat here in a very old grubby T-shirt and fan on me and there's no way of looking good in this heat. Um, no, there's not. There's not. But let's let's paint a picture that we're sitting in dinner jackets <laughs> by a, a roaring fire, having a, a gentlemanly chat. Absolutely, a glass of scotch in one hand. Yes. Uh, well, Paul, how and uh, what have you been doing in this lovely weather? Have you been sat out in your beautiful garden, or? I have. I've been spending some. Not today, actually. Today has been too hot for that. Um, but mm-hmm. I have um, during all of this um, sort of crazy period of time. I have. Um, I have become my own grandfather, and <laughs> I have been uh, pottering around the garden in a straw hat. I just a sort of a mix between my grandfather and Miss Marple, <laughs> Some, um, uh, with That's a sort a of a, a sort of mix. A basket of lavender over one arm as I collect it. No, it's been it actually has been a godsend. Gardening is one of those things that uh, I think once you get into it, you realise that it's a bit addictive, because you plant something, you see it grow, you mm-hmm. you know. And as writers, we're used to doing all of that. Right, uh, theatre people, we do, creative people, we do that. But sometimes it's up to other people whether those things flourish and bloom and blossom. When you have a garden, it's all up to you. So actually, gardening is for control freaks. You're you're only battling the weather, and nobody can blame you for that. <laughs> that's that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I think you would be so upset if you saw my garden. It's kind of in between two gardens where they're very clearly very proud of their gardens, and then there's sort of Jurassic Park in the middle of it. It's really so disgraceful. Kind of, yours is lying fallow, I believe, is how we describe that. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it would be what my my parents would say is is a, a stain on the family name. <laughs> yes. um, I think they'd a be stain on the family escutcheon. Yeah. <laughs> well, Paul, you are you've written. Am I right in saying twenty four musicals in a 20, career? That's... Uh, yeah, twenty. Yes, no, you're right. Twenty four. I was. I'm actually writing twenty five now, but uh, number twenty five. Um, oh, wow. as, as as to whether that's happening or not, who knows? But but I'm still doing the writing of it. Well, would, way, we, so. would we say at this point kind of 24 and a half or 24 uh, and three quarters? Are we being optimistic? Or? Let's say 24 and a page because although I'm writing, <laughs> I, I'm not going about it with any gusto. <laughs> it's difficult when you haven't got a, I guess, a definite time frame to work in. Is that something that helps you write the sort of the yes, looming deadline? Yeah. 
deadline. I love that Douglas Adams quote. I probably oh, yeah, yeah. misquote it now, but you know, I love a deadline. I love the sound as it whooshes past. <laughs> yeah. It's very much me. Um, I, I've been very lucky throughout my career to always be writing something that is already scheduled for production. Most of what, most if not all of what I've done over the years has been um, commissioned work. I know yeah. that some people take great joy in writing and they write and they have drawers full of musicals or plays that they one day hope to see produced. And yeah, that kind yeah. of thing, I've, I've never been able to do that. I've always had to have the poster done first. I, you know, I only ever <laughs> seem to write a show, the poster for which is already on the wall somewhere. Um, and so, yeah, this this is a bit challenging this year because although I am in denial and pretending that the show is opening later this year, um, that potentially is not going to be the case. We really don't know. Um, yeah. But I'm going to keep writing anyway. And the, the worry is that if it's postponed till next year, people will expect it to be twice as good because I'll have had twice as long <laughs> to write it. Um, but so I think we'll the have other thing with that is audiences will be twice as happy to be back in theatres. Yes, that hopefully you expectations in, are offset you could, with their excitement. You could potentially put in half the effort and get twice the applause. I mean, there's all kinds of <laughs> yeah. fantastic maths we could add to this. But uh, let's hope <laughs> that when these things are done, um, you know, there is a tremendous round of applause for everyone. And we're all so happy to be back at work. The quality is going to be through the roof. Oh, I think I think that's almost certainly the case. But over the, the 20 hit years, is it, that you've been writing musicals? Yes, yes. I started when I was about 10, as you know. Um, <laughs> yes, it has been. It has been about that long now. Yeah. And do you do you find it easier as you've gone along or does it become more and more challenging to sort of find ideas that excite you in the same way as they did earlier in your career? Well, I think that uh, I think there's two answers to that. The first is that in a, in a way it is more difficult because you, when you've done something and you've ticked a box, whether that is the style of the show or the title of the show or whatever, it's very difficult to get excited to go back and do that again. So if mm -hmm. someone came to me, for example, and said, uh, oh, we, we need a, a musical adaptation of a Grimm's fairy tale. Well, you know, my early career was all that um, yeah. Grimm's fairy tale at stage adaptations. I find that difficult to do now unless I could find a quirky way of doing it or something interesting. So in a sense, it has become more difficult. Um, yeah. On the other hand, it is no more difficult than it has always been because um, you, I only ever am interested in doing a show that is challenging. So what challenges me today isn't maybe what challenged me 20 years ago, but the, mm -hmm. the level of challenge is the same. And I think that's the difference between if somebody asks you to write a particular show and you have to decide, well, is that something I can bring something to? Does that challenge me in any way? And and if not, then you've got to pass on it. There's no point in making your own life hell. Um, yeah. Sim simply, you know, creative creativity is is all about challenge. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, I I was lucky enough to see uh, what I think was your first ever musical, Macbeth the musical. Yes, way you, know, back you, were, when. you were a tiny child then. I was sat in the rehearsal well, you were never room a thinking you were never that Macbeth a tiny was just the funniest thing young. ever. <laughs> yes, you were a very no. young child, yes. <laughs> but do you still look back at that kind of early work that you did, sort of Macbeth the musical and Who Framed Esmeralda and all those early shows of yours, do you look back at them fondly still or do you look back on it thinking, God, I wish I knew then what I know now? Both, absolutely both. I mean, I... 
uh, I have very fond memories of Macbeth the musical because it was a show I wrote when I was still a student and it was the show that launched my career and uh, there are still some great numbers in there and some funny lines um, my big my big dream is that I get that back on the road again I started rewriting it uh, a couple of years ago and got sort of I don't know, a quarter of the way through it before something else distracted me mm. um, but it, it'll be 30 years old in two years time so uh, oh, you well. know there would be something wonderful about doing a concert of that having oh, reinvented absolutely. it somehow and the other one you mentioned Esmeralda um, was something I got the chance a few years ago to re um, sort of readdress mm. uh, a, a theatre commissioned me to write a musical based on the same book Hunchback and um, the Notre Dame de Paris mm -hmm. and I kind of went well I've already written a version of that a long time ago but I'd really like to do it properly this time and so that musical Hunchback, um, I don't know what year that was, 2013, maybe 14. Um, that was written with the old musical I'd written 20 years earlier at the back of my mind. And some of the tunes and things kind of still exist in the new version. But I think very fondly of the old shows and I'd love to have the opportunity to brush them off and um, kind of put my current writing hat and writing style into them. Um, which, you know, obviously these things develop as you as you get older. That would be incredibly exciting for me as well. I would love to see it back on stage and see if I remember kind of sitting in the rehearsal <laughs> room watching it as a, a five-year-old, insisting that I had to put on my sister's tartan skirt because I wanted to be just like Macbeth. That you was... did, you did, you did. That was the first <laughs> time I've seen, not the last, but certainly the first time I'd seen you in a skirt. <laughs> And Paul, one uh, I think one of your certainly most successful shows in terms of the reach it's had around the world is your musical version of, of Alice in Wonderland. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's been performed in the States and in Japan and all over the place. And you sent me the soundtrack as a kid and I absolutely loved it. And I finally got to see it a couple of years ago at the beautiful Lyric Theatre in Belfast. And the music had evolved quite a bit. That sort of process that you talked about there with Macbeth and with uh, Esmeralda and Hunchback, uh, the music had, had evolved a bit and changed over the course of the 20-year the life of this show. Is that a fun process? Yes. Uh, nobody likes writing. Everyone likes rewriting. So mm -hmm. um, uh, Macbeth was, the, the version you saw, it was its 20th anniversary, so I was restaging it for the lyric in Belfast where the show had originally started. Mm -hmm. And there's no way something I wrote 20 years ago was just going to be slapped up on stage. I mean, any more than a, an essay that you might have written at school would be any good for publication. Now, you know, you're always going to look at these things and change them and try and make them uh, as good as possible. Because yeah. also the thing is, in that 20 year period of the interim, audiences have changed. Um, you know, audiences nowadays are very different in terms of the, their literacy and their um, the kind of stories, particularly for young people and children, the kind of stories they listen to and are um, able to interpret is, is much more complicated than it was 20 years ago. I mean, I started writing pre-Harry Potter, pre-Twilight movies, pre-Artemis file books, all of these um, stories uh, all have very complicated subplots and characters. Mm -hmm. And children nowadays are used to digesting that. And therefore you can't just give them a show that was written slightly lower focus 20 years ago. And mm. so one of the joys of, of redoing Alice was thinking, right, so for, for the kids and the young people today, how, how can I make this show uh, better? 
and 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 use all the experience that I've had in the, in the meantime to to make an even more um, magical musical because of course twenty years ago was pre um, Matilda you know the stage music oh, was yeah. wicked you know yeah. we there really were no stage musicals for children back then other than those which were staged at the regional theatres there's a whole language of musical theatre now for young people which I hope the new Alice fits into yeah. Oh, well, certainly I, I I was there. The only time I could get in to see it was during a school production. So it was, or, you know, for kids coming in and they loved it. But it, it was mad. I mean, I've taught schools workshops, but those kids were just going crazy, kind of doing the flossing with the white rabbit and all sorts. They were just going yeah. mad for it. Yeah, um, they do. it was like a rock concert, which is. Yeah, fantastic. it really is like that. <laughs> and then on the other end of the, the kind of the spectrum of your work, you do such brilliant writing and theatre for adults as well. Um, is there a, do you have a preference for kind of, if you were ch cherry picking your projects, do you kind of, do you love writing those things that families will remember for years to come? Or do you kind of get to think free reign, I can say and do whatever I want with a show for adults? Um, as you say, I have done both. Um, I, I mean, I don't really ever set out to write a show for any particular audience. I think that's always a danger when I'm teaching writing. You know, the first thing I always say to people is, "Write the show for you." You know, you've you've got mm -hmm. to write the show that you would go to see. So I'm aware that some of my shows are classed as family shows, and some are classed as adult shows. They're both shows that I would go to see. As you yeah. say, the difference is when you when you are aware that there's a it's only for adults, then you can be a bit more kind of risque. I had a show called Molly Wobbly's Tip Factory, <laughs> yeah. which clearly wasn't for children. Um, <laughs> and But I was commissioned to write that, and I was commissioned to write that on the basis that it would be as as adult a show as I was prepared to write. And that okay. there was freedom with that. There was tremendous. And I felt like all of the swearing that I'd, not put into lyrics for the previous sort of 15 years all came out in that show it was like one two hour long expletive a <laughs> kind of purge it was it a complete show. yeah and i haven't done another <laughs> one since but i feel it building up again so perhaps there'll be a, <laughs> perhaps there'll be a sequel <laughs> brilliant and we i mentioned earlier about how your your work's been on kind of all over the world have you ever made it out to to see one of these performances somewhere like japan or the I haven't. I haven't. I, well, Japan, I didn't get to see, but they are just hot off the press. That there is a production opening in Japan next March. Oh wow! Um, of that new version of Alice, which I, you know, listen. Who knows what way the world will be next March? But I'd love to see it. I do get to see videos. I make them show me videos and photographs and things. Yeah. The Japanese one is great because it's in a different language, obviously. But it's in one of those languages that bears no resemblance to ours. If you hear your own show done in French or German or Italian, you do kind of a general sense of what they're singing about. Yeah. Japanese is such a foreign language. Excuse the, you know, the the obviousness of that. Sure. Um, it's it's tremendous. It's fun to listen to them try to wangle the way through the lyrics. And now I don't know what they're singing about. It sounds fantastic. So who knows? I might see that one. I know there's another Alice in Canada next. I think that might be March or April as well. Um, so who knows? I have seen some when I lived in the States. There were productions of my shows in other areas of the States that I was able to travel to. Yeah. Um, to see. I saw a few Hansel and Gretels along the West Coast, which was, was kind of fun. 
Um, So I I get to see them every now and again. I'll tell you the weirdest thing was um, I got to sit in the auditions for one show of mine that was being done in Miami. And um, I'm not great with auditions anyway. I don't don't really like auditions. I think they're probably the least effective way to find cast um, that that there is, but it's it's what we do. So um, I was watching all of these ladies, these actresses come in, these girls, and they were all singing. And at that point, everyone was singing Part of Your World. You know that song from Little Mermaid, mm-hmm, yeah. the Disney song. So that that was the audition song. And everyone that came in and sang it, it just happened to be very popular that year. There's, there's always one song that's doing the rounds. But that year they were singing it. In the back of my head, I kept thinking, stop doing the American accent. Because <laughs> in, in British auditions and Irish auditions, you do occasionally get an actress or, or an actor come in and the song that they've learned, they've learned it from a Broadway show or from an American movie and they do the accent. And you're thinking, I don't want to hear you do the American accent. I want to hear you. <laughs> and of course in America, that is their accent. So it was very <laughs> odd. I was actually biting my tongue to say, please, can you do it in your own accent? Then I realized, oh my God, that actually is their own accent. And it really sounds as hokey as when the Brits do it. Or the Irish do it. So, so I, I've been, I've, I've seen a few, I've seen a few. That's very funny. It's very, very strange. Well, speaking of kind of auditions and finding the cast for shows, you are adamant that you won't be acting again, that you won't be in any more stage productions. I got to see you in Pacoon at the Leicester Square Theatre a few years ago, the great Spike Milligan play. You you said that you were sort of slightly duped by the director into kind of appearing in it sort of by stealth. Yes, that, that, that was casting by stealth. <laughs> why are you so adamant? Because you're such a well, wonderful performer, but why well, you're is very it not something kind. that excites you? Uh, I, as you know, back in the day when we all started out, we all did everything. So I would have written and composed and directed and acted in the shows. Mm-hmm. And then at some point in your career, when people start asking you to do work, paid work, commissions you realize that they're asking you to do one thing and not the other so I was getting lots of approaches people asking me to write music for their shows to write scripts for their shows to write musicals very few people asking me to act professionally and so I just veered I followed the money I just veered towards where the demand was and yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm, an, I'm a performer I'm not an actor I don't think I'd ever play Hamlet I and mean, I'm past that now but I think even as a young actor I was aware I was never I'd never be Hamlet so, uh, you know, what's the point, I guess, if, if, if you think it's not something you're going to be brilliant at, go to the thing you think you can make your mark in. Yeah. So I gave up a long time ago and I never really missed it until, as we say, I was writing one of the writing team on the stage version of Spike Milligan's Bakun. And um, I was only there to write the songs and a couple of scenes. And through rehearsals we decided that the music should be live so suddenly I was in the wings playing piano on tour that was going to be the plan and then uh, we got to do some scenes where there was nobody free to give a line and so the director would say well you know Paul's just sat in the wings doing nothing he, he can do that line and I thought well all right then so I got a line here and there and then eventually I came into rehearsals one day the piano was on stage so they obviously decided that if we're paying him, we might as well see him. <laughs> and uh, and then eventually I ended up in scenes. And then, as you saw, I ended up sort of playing the role of the narrator in yeah. the whole show, the, the from Spike character. That, and um, I, I had, you know, I had an absolute ball doing that. We've toured that, I think, three times between 2009, 2016. We did it in the West End. And to this day, it's still a show that if, 
if the production company turned around and said they wanted to do it one more time. Well, that way they always said, well, one more time, we're going to do it one yeah. more time. And I've said yes every time. Um, but if they did do it one more time, I'd be a fool not to do it because the part is written for me. And, uh, yeah. and how, how rare is that? To I mean, I'm just myself on stage. I'm, there's no there's no acting. It is performance. Sure, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I had a great time. But, um, but no, I, 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 I'm not going to be... I've never auditioned. I'm not going to be, you know, looking to play no. sort of Jean, Jean Valjean anytime soon. <laughs> you won't be tricked into appearing in any other shows now. No, no, no I'm wise to it now. I'm wise to it now. <laughs> that was the one-off. Well, Paul, you, you talked about how, you know, at the very beginning of your career, uh, you, you you did everything. And that was, I'm sure, as much as anything else, out of necessity, kind of starting out a career in the arts, you need to do as much as you can on a kind of shoestring budget. What do you think the state of the arts is now, kind of even pre-COVID, or if you take COVID out of the equation, mm -hmm. do you think if you were starting out in the arts now, you'd have been able to forge the same career for yourself? Or do you think there are just different challenges and obstacles now to sort of aspiring theatre makers? I don't think, I think it's much more difficult now. I think that it's, it was more difficult for me than it was for the generation before me. And I think mm -hmm. it's more difficult for the generations that have followed after. Um, because I've not been based in Belfast, where I come from and where I first started my career. I have been watching it from afar. I'm not completely up to speed with what's going on there in terms of the number of theatre companies and what have you that are there but I know that when we started I left university and we started a theatre company which was the thing we did um, and uh, there was five of us so we started a theatre company and we all acted and everything wrote everything produced everything mm -hmm. and you know within I think within about six months of having that company up and running we had arts council funding and shortly after that we had sports council funding not not that we were sporty but we got a, a minibus out of that you know oh, wow. so we were and then and then we had office space and this is all within the process of a year or so yeah. that wouldn't happen now even even if there were no other companies around the the, the mountains that you have to climb for funding are slightly different now um Fortunately, because of Macbeth the Musical, when when we had all left university, we were known as the company that had produced that show, which had been very successful. So we were able to cash in on that. Um, I don't know whether students nowadays get the opportunity to do anything like that, mm -hmm. but I, I don't know. I, I, I can't imagine that I would have a career. I, I think I'd get lost in the... I, I was unremarkable enough to have got lost in... Um, all of those around me, I think, if if I was to do it now, if it, were, if it was happening now. I think you're being very modest there, Paul. I don't think there's anything unremarkable about the, the work that you've done. Um, and, and you mentioned that theatre company, Kibosh, is that right? Kibosh, and it's still yeah. going. Kibosh is, yeah, yeah, they did. Uh, I mean, obviously none of us from the originals, none of yeah. us are still alive. <laughs> um, we call ourselves the continuity kibosh which is a whole northern irish joke, in joke. Uh, but none of us uh we're very pleased to see the company there the name the company still exists and i mean that must be we started that in 1994 so i mean that well, must be 20 26, 26 years old and yeah, um, wow. it's still going it's one of the bigger theater companies in northern ireland it, as i say it's a very different company now it's been mm -hmm. very difficult in some ways to watch it from afar because it's so different when we set it 
up, it was essentially an entertainment company. We did musicals, we did mm-hmm. tours to schools, we did dance pieces. It was a very, we just tried to plug the gaps where the other professional companies weren't producing work. What, yeah. you know, whatever they weren't producing, we did. And we became very versatile and very, uh, you know, and, we, and after that, we all sort of left and went off into our own different fields. Mine was musical theatre, obviously. But um, it's great to see the company still going. It means that whatever foundations were put in place all those years ago, have uh, you know, we had good foundations and, and the company's still doing very well yeah it's it's really lovely to see it's and as you say very different now but to kind of see how the company's evolved that must be very satisfying it's um, great it's great whenever you see their name crop up every now and again you do kind of go i remember the night we sat down and made up that word come on <laughs> you know i met or the arguments it was probably an argument i remember the argument we had to come up with that name, <laughs> Well, Paul, 25 minutes in here, I should really ask you about your dream dinner party. Yeah, well, it's why we're here. I've lost my appetite now. We've been talking for so long. <laughs> I've passed hunger. The pre-drinks just went on too long. Yes. Uh, so before we learn about the kind of the specifics of where it would be and who would be there and what you'd be eating, uh, you are someone who I think enjoys hosting a good dinner party. You always see, I think you're a fun host. What's the vibe of a typical Paul Boyd dinner party? I think it's an all-you-can-eat buffet. I think I, <laughs> I have that kind of come hungry and come often. Um, <laughs> I find it impossible to make a meal for two. So there's in, any night at our house could be, a, could, could be a dinner party. But it's all about <laughs> catching up with friends. I mean, anytime I have dinner parties, it's because there are friends I have not seen uh, when you live in London, um, people that you've known for years can live up the street and you see them once a year if you're lucky. You know, you just we never, ever think of. Yeah. I, I see friends who live abroad almost as regularly as I see friends who live down the street here. And yeah. so a dinner party is a great way of getting people around and also a great way of mixing groups of friends. So there's, you know, food being the great common denominator between us all. A good yeah. conversation piece. It's a relaxing atmosphere. So dinner parties are much better, I think, than a drinks party, where the only objective is to find something colourful and get drunk, as far as I can see. <laughs> yes. And the great thing with the dinner party, I suppose, is that the two aren't mutually exclusive. You can always yes, get a little bit tipsy at a dinner party too, but it's maybe in a slightly more helps. responsible way. Um, well, fantastic. So, Paul, we know the vibe. Where, if you could host it anywhere in the world... Where do you think you would like to host this dinner party? Well, you know, this, this, I hadn't given any thought to this, but I think that the obvious thing to do was, first of all, I would definitely host it at home because yep. I, like, I like being at home. I like having my things around me and knowing where everything is. Mm-hmm. I would probably do it in the garden um, yes. because, again, people can walk around the garden and look at the flowers and sort of, again, that gives you different areas to sit. Good weather, get some umbrellas up. Um, and, and what have you so I, a good open air dinner party I think would be great then it means anyone who needs to smoke can go off in the corner and do that without leaving the room and, yeah, and, and yeah. people can wander about and sit on the grass and that kind of thing so a garden party perfect. I think I think if, if anybody wanted to to see the very garden you you keep such a lovely garden and you post the occasional picture on Twitter so we'll <laughs> yeah. post a, a link to your Twitter account in the episode <laughs> description so that people can really picture this party. So we know where it is. We know that it's going to be a lovely sunny evening and everyone's going to be hanging out in your garden. And your first guest is Mm. J.M. Barry. And you've written stage versions of so many kind of really well-loved literary works. But what is it about J.M. Barry 
as opposed to someone like Lewis Carroll or Victor Hugo or the Brothers Grimm. Why does J.M. Barry kind of fascinate you enough to be one of your five guests? Uh, I think J.M. Barry is an enigma and um, in the way that the others are not. Um, mm. Barry, I did I did a lot of, I, I wrote Peter Pan last year for, for um, the Lyric Theatre Belfast in association with Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. And uh, I have to say, I always do sort of three months research on any topic before I sit down to write. And I suddenly realised about six months in that I still hadn't put pen to paper. I was still reading about J.M. Barry. Yeah. Uh, so many books, so many um, autobiograph not autobiographies, biographies, yeah. um, and then so many versions of his own history that he'd written himself. And you still come out of it after all of that research, um, not much wiser than when you went in. So um, I, I don't know whether he was a nice person or not. I, I don't think he was. I think he was a very quiet man. I know that if he came to the dinner party, he wouldn't speak. Um, yeah. He would sit in the corner and cough. He had a terrible cough, which in today's climate would cause panic. But, it would. <laughs> uh, but we'll, we'll pretend that this, there is no COVID at this point. Um, so coughing Barry in the corner. Yeah, I, I, again, I've so much research and so many sort of nefarious deeds he was involved in and, and so many conspiracies and things for which there's evidence. that I, I would just, I don't think I would have the nerve to ask him any questions and I'm not sure I'd get any answers from him anyway. Yeah. But I always think if you meet someone, you can tell how truthful they're being or them. how genuine they are. And having him at the party and seeing him interact with my other guests, I think, I would leave knowing a little bit more about him than than I can possibly learn from the books and articles that I've read. That's interesting. That very much leans into your uh, Miss Marple thing that you said yes. earlier. Yes, oh, I would be wearing, I would have the trug and the, <laughs> the flopsy hat with the scarf under the chin, definitely. <laughs> when it came to, to Peter Pan, was, the, uh, was this an idea that the lyric came to you with or did you say to the lyric, I would love to tackle this story we always I've a fan had, of peter pan yeah I, i've had peter pan on the list for a long time but i've never ever had the nerve to suggest it because it's an expensive show i mean yes. you know it, 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 that's why it's not done very often by regional theaters um i mean not even just for the flying but the size of the cast and blah, blah, blah. so yeah. I, I didn't suggest it it was the lyric who came to me alice was running at the time in the theater and we were looking for a title for the following year and um, and they suggested Peter Pan, and I nearly fell off my chair. And I went, yeah, God, yes, absolutely, <laughs> Peter Pan. Because I thought, you haven't thought this through. I mean, you just don't. <laughs> Let's just sign now. And then after we'd signed, I kind of, you do realise, you know, that the original play is four hours long because um, it, it has to be based on the original. There's all kinds of regulations and stuff, which, again, was my challenge. I was telling you earlier about how you're writing a new show. What's interesting is the yeah, challenge. Yeah. The challenge with Peter Pan is that the rights are still held, even though Barry died in 1936. The rights are still held by Great Ormond Street Hospital, uh, Children's Hospital, Yeah, which is who he donated the rights to. And so in order to do an adaptation, you've got to get their permission. You've got to get permission from Samuel French, who owned the 1904 uh, uh, play. Oh, wow. um, and uh, oh, sorry, the 1929 play was when he finally, um, it was first staged 1904, but he finished kind of tinkering with it 20 odd years later. Okay. Uh, 1928, give the rights to Great Ormond Street, 1929. So you've all these people telling you what you can and cannot do with the show. And little stipulations like you can't change character names, 
the name Tinkerbell must be two words, Tinkerbell, as opposed to Tinkerbell, oh, wow. which sometimes you say. Little things like that. Pirate Individual pirates have to keep the same names and things. Yeah. So uh, my job was to see how much of an adaptation I could do. How, how much can I change this story to make a good story? Because I would argue that the original does not have a tremendous narrative. Um, and I think we did that and everyone was very happy with it. The charities were happy with it. Some mm-hmm. of French were happy with it. You know, so that was the challenge then. Um, but I would never have dared go to the lyric and say, well, can we do Peter Pan? I mean, you might as well say, can we do Ben-Hur? You know. <laughs> That's it's such a fascinating thing. And I think it's sometimes maybe something that uh, people outside of theatre wouldn't necessarily think of all those... Uh, myriad of different factors that you've got to to kind of contend with was it was it an enjoyable challenge to sort of have the that kind of straight jacket of so many rules that you have to write to or did yes, you want to kind of a... throw it out the window no it was it was tremendous fun and i guess that's where all the research came in because it, you know, i did so much research that by the time i sat down to do it i knew every word of the book, the play, because there's not just one Peter Pan. There's you know two novels and that he wrote, and and mm-hmm. and the play version that he wrote. So there's lots of source materials. I knew them all, and I could write in his style, not music, because Barry was tone deaf. So I'm hoping I didn't write in his <laughs> style. But the terms of the script, I'm very proud of the script for Peter Pan, because yeah. it is a. It is, I have taken. You've, you've got to. You're told you've got to write in his style. And I, I think I got that and I managed to create a story from his four hour play. I managed to create sort of a two hour story that hits all the high notes that the audience are expecting. And yet it's yeah. a new story in there. It's a different way of looking at Peter Pan. That's a phenomenal achievement. Uh, speaking of uh, kind of going back to J.M. Barry for a bit, he he had a life that was sort of quite beset by personal tragedies. And, and you alluded earlier to some some accusations of kind of impropriety in his life as well all of this mm-hmm. stuff clearly influenced and inspired his work you being aware of these kind of for want of a better word kind of sinister undertones or yeah potentially sinister undertones to what inspired his work was that a difficult thing to get your head around and sort of try to forget about that and just focus on the kind of purity of the story. It was, sinister is a great word. I mean, he called himself sinister. He called himself a sinister little man. So that's a great word to use. And what can I say? All of the uh, accusations about Barry are not connected to the obvious. So we're not talking about a man who had any kind of sexual proclivities. In fact, he Mm -hmm. was completely asexual. So I never had a kind of a guilt in kind of the way I did with Lewis Carroll, when I'm trying mm-hmm. to adapt his work, I, you just have to block him out completely because to open that can of worms um, is is too much. It just would bleed into the show in some way. Yeah, Bar- Barry's the, the conspiracies and the thoughts about Barry as a as a man are not connected to that in any way. They're connected to his double dealing and his his the way that he was. Uh, how can I put it? He was a journalist in the true sense of the word. He journaled everything in his life. Yeah. Um, everything that is in Peter Pan is something that happened to him. Um, Barry had a fantastic way. If Barry saw an accident happening at the end of the road, he would be telling you about it as if he was there standing in the middle of the accident, <laughs> probably the cause of the accident. But he was a complete revisionist. He, revi- he revised his entire life, um, made up. This is one of the reasons why meeting him in person, you'd, you'd 
get to see through all of the kind of the mists and the cloud that he threw yeah, up in front of himself. Yeah. To he wanted to be an enigma. He was desperate to be a myth. Um, so that was really interesting for me. And the idea of this kind of double dealing, well, I just feed that into the character like Hook. You know, don't forget James Hook. In my version, it's a woman, but the original James Hook. I mean, he, James was Barry's name. That was him, yeah. you know, much more so than any other character. So it was a fascinating backdrop to write against, but it didn't, it, it wasn't, I think if there had been any kind of sexual proclivities or, or suggestions, I would have found that a little bit harder to deal with. Um, yeah. I might have tainted everything but but no the, the kind of just his manipulation he was a manipulator and um and that was a fantastic kind of backdrop because as a writer isn't that what we're doing to an audience you're manipulating them to feel certain ways so in some ways he was inspirational yeah well he certainly in, in terms of a first guest for your dinner party i think we've already picked out your wild card for the evening because Yes. He's not a, the qualities that he's bringing. I wouldn't necessarily associate with being the ideal dinner party guest. But no, and I think if we were to issue him an invite, we would tell him to come half an hour later than everybody else. I mean, you don't want to start <laughs> with him. That's an awful opening to any dinner party. Come yes. and meet my friend Jimmy Barry. You know, sat in the corner <laughs> coughing on his own. <laughs> well, J.M. Barry's there, and obviously he's written for stage. You've written for stage. But your, your quota for theatre writers and composers isn't filled yet because your next guest is one half of one of the most famous musical theatre duos ever. You're inviting Arthur Sullivan. Yes, I am. He, now, he is a bit of a wild card for me, I have to say. Oh. Um, uh, Gilbert, I'm a huge Gilbert and Sullivan fan. I don't, you'll probably not remember, but back when I was at university, my dissertation for my degree was all about the history of Gilbert and Sullivan. Oh, I've wow. always adored Gilbert and Sullivan's work. And Gilbert actually would probably make a much more entertaining um, guest if you had to invite one. I wouldn't invite them both together because they didn't necessarily get on all the time. Yeah. But I feel it. Arthur Sullivan was a bit more of a playboy and I think he would be great fun. Arthur Sullivan was no stranger to the gaming tables in Monte Carlo. Uh -huh. um, a lot of the work that Sullivan took on, including the work he did with Gilbert, he did purely for financial gain to fund his very elaborate life. He was, um, if I remember right, I can't remember dates. It's been a long time since I did any work on on them. But he, but he was, uh, I remember somebody in one of the papers at the time wrote that if that Arthur Sullivan is basically the court composer, of Victoria's court composer, mm. um, in, in a way that Gilbert was never the court jester. Um, they worked and moved in very different circles. But I always think Arthur Sullivan would have been tremendous fun at a party. Yeah. He was, he was, quite flamboyant um uh, and also i'm a big fan of his work you know i mean he wrote tunes which um uh, he also attempted to write opera but but he really did write tunes and th there is a very strong argument for the fact that gilbert and sullivan were the first people to create what we would now call musical theater uh, the americans yeah. can always contest that but but i think i think the evidence is there um from the work of gns yeah and am I right in saying, so Arthur Sullivan uh, was all about the music and Gilbert was the lyricist, is that That's correct? That's it, yeah. Yeah, so Arthur Arthur Seymour Sullivan, his initials were ass, which is why he never used the word Seymour. <laughs> so Sir Arthur, he was Dr. Sullivan, 
and then he became Sir Arthur Sullivan long before Gilbert became Sir William Gilbert. Right. Um, so there was a bit of contention there, but he, yeah, he was the musician and a great pianist, a fantastic pianist. He'd be great at the dinner party because I get the feeling that he would have been there with his um, cigarette holder hanging out of his mouth, heading mm -hmm. straight for that piano to give us a bit of a bit of something that he'd oh, just so written. Kind of dinner yeah. and a show. Yeah, I wouldn't tell him that when he got there, but I, I don't think he could resist the piano. Yeah. <laughs> Has has Arthur Sullivan or, or kind of the work of Gilbert and Sullivan directly influenced the way that you write music and musicals? Yeah, I, I, I don't know whether I could actually put my finger on it and I don't know whether it's true now, but certainly when I started, uh, it, the work of Gilbert and Sullivan was the thing I knew the most about. Um, mm -hmm. I knew every note of every song. I knew every stage version. I was a big fan of the Doily Card Opera Company. Um, so in terms of structure, and that's more Gilbert than it is Sullivan, but in terms of structuring a show, I mean, W.S. Gilbert, he's not invited to the party. I know this, but <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about him to annoy Sir Arthur. W.S. <laughs> Gilbert effectively invented the role of stage management. There was no stage managers in theatre. It was, you know, it, it was the director did everything um, st and stage hands. But the idea of having a book in the theatre we have a book which is the script with all the right moves written into it mm -hmm. that was a gilbert invention and those books still exist those books gilbert's original books still exist and up until the 80s when the doily cart the original doily cart company uh, opera company closed they were still staging the shows exactly to his notes um and they were sort of a museum piece by the 80s which i you know led to their downfall but mm. he, he was an innovator and and sullivan i think uh brought interest to the shows because he was seen as the great white hope uh, that's how he was described at the time the great white mm -hmm. hope of british music um uh, people couldn't understand why he was writing these sort of west end savoy operas as they were called but they were basically early west end musicals why was he writing those and not off writing great oratorios and and symphonies and things which he did also do but then the truth was that he made a great deal of money from his stage work and yeah. he brought he brought to it a quality an, an etherealness if you like um, he was almost too good for the work and so adding his uh, beautiful and very high standard musical compositions to Gilbert's very pointed very satirical punch cartoon style scripts yeah. elevated elevated them to something that that every other musical created at the time has since fallen into obscurity. So I think Sullivan, a lot, a lot of the longevity of Gilbert and Sullivan is to do with Sullivan's music. And I'd, I'd love to tell him that. Yeah, it's, it's really He'd interesting. He'd love that. He'd love to hear that. <laughs> Who wouldn't love to hear that, though? <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you brought that up because that was something that I kind of read about in advance of this, that um, he was criticised in the media and the idea was that... Uh, the supreme talent he had that he was lending to to something that was ultimately too frivolous and it was kind of beneath him um do you think that's a fair criticism i think it was at the time don't forget we're talking about a period when the word theater wasn't really used to describe it, uh, what we now call a theater theaters were akin to brothels and what happened was you had lots of anybody who ran a theatre would find some way of describing it without using the word theatre. And therefore you end up with these fantastic buildings called galleries of illustration. 
<laughs> you know, rather than use the word theatre. Yeah. Uh, theatres were musicals, where um, which was debauchery and filthy uh-huh. songs and, you know, people throwing things at each other, everything that you can imagine. So th- the idea that uh, Sullivan would put himself amongst those people, it was a bit, I guess, a bit like when Mozart wrote the magic flute. I guess it was mm-hmm. the same kind of thing where you had this kind of composer writing something popular, something populist. Um, uh, the difference was that Sullivan happened to be doing it just at the time when operetta was becoming a thing. Offenbach was very popular and they were very much seen as writing the British cleaner versions of the very naughty French operettas that Offenbach was writing. Mm-hmm. And along came Richard Doyley Cart with a huge pot of money and opened the Savoy Theatre. But there, you were using the word theatre for the first time, and um, uh, and it sort of suddenly had respectability. So Arthur came along to it at just the right time. Um, yeah. But I think there still was a case of, oh my God, why why is he working with that sort of cartoonist and columnist W. S. Gilbert, and and what is he doing having shows on in London that are not at the opera houses? Certainly, yeah. the beginning of their career together that was true. It, it wasn't so much towards the end. And as yeah, as success kind of came to them, and as they became very financially uh, okay. successful, commercially successful, do you think that that was the kind of marked beginning of uh, your your kind of opera audience maybe uh, opening their eyes a little bit to the fact that things don't have to be so dreadfully serious all the time? Yes, because the um, I mean, opera was all about gods and monsters and mm-hmm. and and Mount Olympus. And ironically, the first show that Gilbert and Sullivan wrote together, which doesn't exist anymore because it was lost, was a musical called Thespis or The Gods Grown Old, which was set on Mount Olympus. Um, and that was done at I, I think I'm right in saying it was done at the very theatre I mentioned, the Gallery of Illustration. Um, it was only performed for a short time and it was then taken off and it was a good 10 years before they worked together again. But that, I guess, was the segue into uh, leading audiences who were used to those themes in opera into slightly more accessible forms of theatre, which their shows definitely were. You know, people laughed. Their show, the shows were hysterical. They were satirical. They were on point. They were cutting edge, which is a horrible phrase, which I never use, but they really were at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, if you went to see El Gilbert and Sullivan Opera, you were going to see something that was commenting on life in the way that we would pick up a satirical magazine today yeah. or a TV show. It was, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was almost like a spitting image you know, to use yeah. a, a, a thing from today. Uh, you would go and you'd see society lampooned and famous characters from society lampooned, thinly disguised by these characters that Gilbert created. So it was really was on the cusp of topicality and mod- modernism. Um, yeah. uh, and it's... Arthur Sullivan to that added a gloss of beautiful music so that if you didn't want to see those things, you could just sit back and talk about how fabulous the tunes were, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really fascinating. On that, um, I, I'm I'm kind of endlessly fascinated by this idea of sort of high art, um, and it's something, and I can edit this out afterwards if you're not happy with me saying this. But I remember mm-hmm. speaking to you after Pacoon at the Leicester Square Theatre, and mm-hmm. I was raving about it, and I'd laughed the whole way through. And you said to me, "It's not high art, but it's great fun." <laughs> and you you said those words to me and I remember kind of thinking but what is high art then I mean this is it was so effective and so brilliant at what it was what it set out to do which was to make people laugh it was as 
as quality uh, a version of that end goal as any I'd seen. So I don't know what kind of wouldn't make something high art just because it makes people laugh. You can see my bias as a as a stand up comedian coming in here as well. Yes, yes. <laughs> but I think what I probably meant—I don't remember saying that—but I think what I was probably meant was I don't think it's a quality thing because I think that there are lots of very low art <laughs> examples of low <laughs> art that are beautiful quality. But yeah. um, I think I was probably joking about the fact that there we were in London, where there are there's a lot of money spent on some very high art productions down the road at places like the Royal Opera House. Yes. And I'd yeah. probably come out of a very sweaty dressing room, um, <laughs> having just sat at a piano for two hours while somebody dressed as a woman hit, hit me over the head with a policeman's truncher. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the level, that's Spike's level. So, yeah. uh, but it's not high art. And Spike would certainly never have said it was high art. But um, but it, it's not high art, but it was fun. And and that was, uh, I, I listen, I could say that about everything I've written in the past 30 years. <laughs> and I'm quite happy with that. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's a really interesting thing about how things are perceived and kind of, like, you know, stand-up comedy is something that isn't eligible for Arts Council funding and that kind of thing. And I, I think there is this kind of perception sometimes that comedy isn't as legitimate as things that take themselves very seriously, even though, as you will well know, comedy is an exceptionally difficult thing to get right. And that's something that Gilbert and Sullivan will have, will have realised as well. Yeah, I, I, anybody, and I don't mean to step in it detrimentally in any way, but it is it is more difficult to write a funny play than it is to write a play. Um, yeah. Because in a sense, to write a funny play, you've got to write a play first and then make it funny. So, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's just it's twice as much work. Um, and some people find that easy and some people don't. Um, you know, some people are born with funny bones. Um, some people work at it. Some people work in teams. But it is a shame. I think you're right. I think it is a shame that these things are not seen as art art is a difficult word it's not it's not a word i use very often because i always mm. always afraid that joe public judges us for being artists in a sense yeah. particularly at times like now when there are problems and everyone's vying for funding and you know the idea that the hospitals need more money than the arts is is a is an argument that you hear a lot and of course it's true but it doesn't mean that the arts is invaluable yes. and I, I worry that using art rather than entertainment or show business sometimes distances us from our audience um, yeah. And anybody sitting down to watch a Netflix drama at night, uh, you know, box set doesn't think they're sitting watching art, they're being entertained. And sometimes it's an easier argument to make for funding and things if you can say, well, you entertain and occupy people, give them a good time, which is exactly what comedy does, stand up or otherwise. So, yes, yeah. it is a shame that there isn't a broader brush in terms of definition. It's a fascinating kind of semantic debate, isn't it? Um but, and that's all it is. That's all it is. Yeah. Yeah. Really, at the end of the day, I'm sure Arthur Sullivan would probably just say, "Enough of this. Give me a cigarette and a piano." Pass the <laughs> wine. Interested. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of passing the wine, let's pass the the bottle to your third guest. And this is something that doesn't happen very often on the dinner party. But your third dream dinner party guest is someone that I think you quite regularly have dinner with. You're inviting <laughs> your pal Sue Pollard. Yes, yes, I am. I had dinner with her last night. Strangely, she, um, yes, Sue, Sue, uh, I, I just, Sue is the perfect dinner guest. At any occasion, you could put Sue Pollard in a room with hundred people she doesn't know, and by the end they're all talking, 
And um, mm-hmm. I mean, she's my antidote to J.M. Barry. I can't imagine J.M. Barry would last <laughs> very long in the corner without with with Sue there. But Sue has a <laughs> over many years has has learned to um, to command a room and and to be make people feel comfortable in a room. So, for example, if if you go somewhere with Sue to a party um, and there is food being passed around, Sue will the first thing Sue will do is to go to the kitchen and meet the staff and ask if she can take one of the trays. And Sue will then go around the room offering volivons or whatever whatever happens to be on the tray to the mm-hmm. guests, none of whom she knows. And the reason <laughs> she does that is she says, it gives them a chance to say hello to me. And we can talk about something for a few seconds over, you know, about the, the food that she has on offer or whatever she's doing. And then she can come away again and everyone feels like they've met her. And then she doesn't have and a full evening of people pointing or people finding excuses to come over or, you know, or, or you know, Sue's very happy yeah. to meet people that, that know her from the telly back in the 80s or the more recent stuff she's done. But she just has a way of working a room that actually means that you don't end up with uh, lots of people interrupting dinner or um, lots of people because she loved to meet them, but sometimes people find the most ridiculous reasons to come over. You know, <laughs> yeah. you look you look familiar, or are you, I think I know who you are, all of that stuff. Well, she yeah. gets that all out of the way. She'll take a pizza round, offer slices of pizza. <laughs> so if we if we had her at the dinner party, she, she'd be straight up to the salad bar, and she'd be lifting a few trays of stuff and going round, and she'd be putting that, uh, that, that beetroot salad right under J.M. Barry's nose and forcing him... <laughs> to divulge some kind of information that, that we could all do with. She'd come back and just say, yep, you were right about him. Yeah, oh, you. I don't like him. Oh, I don't like him, she'd say. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sue, she's she's best known for a role in the, the BAFTA-winning sitcom Heidi High. But when did you first come to know Sue? Or when did you, I guess, were you a fan of Heidi High? Oh, yeah, that, that's my era. I mean, that as a kid, we, we watched Heidi High. And mm-hmm. and the other one she did was a thing called You Rang My Lord, mm-hmm. which was kind of a follow up to Heidi High, different story, but the same cast. And um, and those that was a fantastic show. If you hear her talk about that show, the money they spent on that, that was a very expensive show. It was a bit like the Downton Abbey of its day. In fact, mm-hmm. that was it. It was a kind of an upstairs, downstairs thing. But there was no expense spared on that show. She had silver service training for that show. All of the props and things were of the era. It was a very expensive show for the BBC to do. And she, I think that of all of them that she did, that was her favourite one. Every episode was 45 minutes long as opposed to half an hour, which means mm. it doesn't get repeated quite as often anymore because, you know, it doesn't fit into the schedules. But, yeah. but, um, but I watched all of those and I was very aware of her. And then when I moved to London, um, I used to see her out socially every now and again because, again, you can't be in a room with Sue and not know she's there. Sure. Um, she's like a firework in the middle of the room. You know, you kind of know that she's in all kinds of ways. And and so I met her socially a few times. And then we were doing Molly Wobbly. Again, it was at Leicester Square Theatre in about, I don't know, 2015, I think it was, something like that. And she came to see it and we got talking afterwards. And we've just been thick as thieves ever since. I've directed her a couple of times in Panto. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, she did. Uh, we do Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and um, I did the, the Grand Theatre in Blackpool and the Assembly Hall, Tunbridge Wells. I directed her twice in in that uh, show, um, and just had an absolute blast. So yeah, we see each other a lot, and um, there's a kind of a group of us that kind of get together whenever we possibly can. 
yeah. and and keep up to date. We've been Zooming. I mean, who knew Pollard knew how to Zoom? I mean, she's a Zoom <laughs> fiend, you know. She can Zoom on a train. She can Zoom from anywhere. <laughs> I need to be sat squarely at my desk facing the right wall, but no, yeah, she can do it on the definitely move. Definitely better than me. I can't Zoom on the move. Yeah, I mean, sometimes you see a lot of her upper nose and stuff, but that's just <laughs> because she's quite, she's quite, you know, emotive. Part of the and pleasure. Accusive. Part of the pleasure. But yeah, so I doubt you've got to, I wouldn't have a dinner party without her being there because, you know, she is the very embodiment of breaking the ice. That is high praise indeed for any dinner party guest. I mean, I'm assuming as well that she's got some terrific stories because she's worked with some kind of exceptional talent, people like Tracy Ullman and Tim Brooke Taylor and Andrew Sachs. Does she, she kind goes, of share stories of all yeah, these people? Yeah, she's very happy to talk. I mean, she's not a name, not a clanger, not a name dropper. But if sure. you ask her about something, you know, every now and again, something will come up and I'll say, did you ever work with him? And go, yes. And then there'll be some filthy story connected to it. <laughs> or it's that, I mean, the, this woman, uh, my wedding two years ago, um, this, this gives the measure of this woman. So this woman... Before my wedding, I'd had a chat with him. I'd said, right, I need you. We're not doing like a disco after the wedding. We're having a cabaret show. Mm -hmm. So that all of my friends who are performers all will do a turn. That's their gift. That's what I wanted a show. I said, and I want you to do, oh, yes, of course, I'll do it. But I I think what I'll do, she said, I'm not going to do a song. I'm going to do a sketch. I'll do a bit of a sketch. Right, fine. Okay, so then she turns up on the day looking gorgeous. And I said, are you ready for the show? What show? Well, she'd forgotten all about it. So so she had about an hour and a half to prepare. And so she got up. I put her towards the end of the show to give her more time. And she stood up and she did a set that I can only imagine. She cobbled it together from jokes that she'd heard at school, filthy limericks. There's... (laughs) There's a story about a woman sitting in the front row of the church that I cannot tell you until you're at least <laughs> 40 years old. And she, abs- she absolutely <laughs> stole the show. And we took a video of it. And I, you can hear me screaming with laughter because I also, I was sitting with my friend, Jamie Steen, who uh, is one of our gang. And we both know how far these stories can go. The level of filth and hilarity <laughs> that you can get to. And she was towing the line and then the, foot went slightly over the line and Jamie and I got the giggles thinking oh god please let her stop at that joke because I know what the next <laughs> joke is so she, she's a consummate performer and well has stories about everyone and and has worked with some because she's done royal variety shows and mm. um, she's done big tours of all kinds of shows and musicals from Little Shop of Horrors um Rocky Horror she did Annie you know she's not she didn't play Annie she played uh, Miss Hannigan <laughs> but um but yeah I mean she's just got fantastic stories and we'll happily talk about them if you're at all interested um, yeah. and yeah tremendous insight lovely. tremendous insight yeah is she someone that you you kind of bounce creative ideas off of or when you're together is it just kind of away from work and just purely focused on having a good time it tends to be it tends to be the latter. When we do work together, we um, so for example, if in the run up to rehearsal, starting for pantomime, she and I and the musical director will have got together for a few days on and off in the run up to rehearsals, mm-hmm. where we'll rattle through her songs so that she have a bit has some preparation under her belt before we start rehearsals, mm-hmm. and and those sessions are very much about bouncing ideas off each other. What about if we did this? And what about if we did change the lyrics to this and do a bit of that? Those are tremendous sessions, and she's very creative that way and and writes a lot of lyrics and stuff herself 
mm. uh, you know, for when you're in a panto and you want some lyrics changed for a song, chances are she's got four versions in a notebook. She has a Hannibal Lecter-like scroll in a <laughs> in a notebook, and and one of those versions will be right on the money. But when we're out, we tend to be talking about work we have coming up and family stuff and plans we're doing and where we might go next and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, it tends not to be about about the specifics of work. Oh, she just she sounds like the ideal dinner party guest. I can totally see why you're inviting her. Your your next guest is someone that I would be inviting to my dream dinner party as well. Oh, really? And he's also uh, I've done this on I, I ran the dinner party as a little mini series on BBC Oxford. And this is episode four of the podcast. And this is this person's fourth appearance. So he's by far wow. away the most popular dinner party guest, which just demonstrates how beloved he is. Uh, you're inviting the, the incomparable Jim Henson. Yeah, I am. Um, um, what, what can I say about Jim Henson that hasn't already been said even on, on your show? Yeah. Um, <laughs> except that he is uh, a part of my childhood that was very special to me and... Mm-hmm that I still think back on um, very fondly. And I feel, as so many of us did, uh, I felt as a child like I knew him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I grew up in Belfast, as you know, uh, mm-hmm. which was a million miles away from the rest of the world. I mean, and, and we're talking about the, there was a lot of troubles in mm-hmm. Northern Ireland at that point anyway. Something like The Muppet Show coming along um, was filmed in London. And I think even as a child of four or five or six, I knew that. I knew everything about the Muppets. I knew all the different performers who mm-hmm. did what. I knew where they started. I knew I could sing all the songs. I could mouth all the sketches. I had the albums. And the idea that it was filmed in London was really exciting because that London was like a dream world. You know, it, it might as well have been on the moon, but mm-hmm. something, the idea that oh, he wasn't that far away. The Muppets were not that far away. And I have um, collected puppets my entire life. I've always been obsessed with puppets and um, have in my later years become very fond of um, catching up with what the Muppet performers of old are doing now. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent my birthday evening this year, it was during lockdown, um, on a Zoom conference. Was with... this the Muppet guys talking Thing. Uh, no, no, that that was fantastic. That's a, a little film that the documentary they did. But they did a Zoom conference one night. It was on the night of my birthday. Um, your birthday is in April, isn't it? Yes. Sixteenth. Twenty fifth. Twenty fifth. I'm just 18th, after so I'm, you. A week after you. Yeah, I'm just before you. So that night, I did a Zoom conference with Frank Oz and Dave Goals. And um, I was one of 50 people or something in the room and got to ask a question and things. Oh, and wow. that just, to me, is just phenomenal. And, uh, yeah, so I, I, and I read a biography of him recently. Um, oh, by oh Brian, was this the Brian May Jones one? Yes, Brian May Jones, who's a fantastic um, yeah, writer in I've, his own I've started writes. it. I haven't finished it yet. It's a fantastic... Uh, well, I listen to the audio book, which is something I do sometimes when I'm walking mm. the dog. And... Mm-hmm. Um, and it was very, very insightful and very loving and very honest. Um, and I think has the seal of approval of um, some of the, you know, the family. and people, Yes, you know, it, was, the it was kind of written with full cooperation of the, the family and the Jim Henson um, company. Yeah. But, you know, I came out of that. Um, uh, there's no shock to the end of Jim's story. You know, when Jim yeah. died in, the, in, in 1990, is that right? Yeah, um, around then, yeah. 
But I've got to tell you, when that bit, when that comes up in the book, it's still a stab in the heart. It really is. And I cannot fathom why we all feel that way about him. Um, uh, but, he, but we do. And one yeah. of the reasons to have him at the party is just to soak up some of that, that hippie-ish, beatnicky, altogether creative team builder that he was. Soak up some of that atmosphere because I think we could do with a bit more of that in the creative yeah. industries. You know, hundred percent. This the thing that uh, everyone I speak to about Jim Henson, and the, and the reason why I love him so so much as well is that the spirit of everything he ever made you know sesame street fraggle rock labyrinth all of it muppets especially the spirit of it is just so pure so friendly and hopeful and positive and inclusive and does that spirit of his work influence the way you write i asked you about it with uh, with sullivan um but the, the spirit of Henson, is that something that you try to inject a little bit of into your shows? Definitely. And I don't, maybe not so much as the writer, but definitely as the director. Uh-huh. Um, I'm only interested in putting together a team that will be a family. Um, I don't do divas. I don't do the male equivalent of divas. I'm not interested mm-hmm. in putting bums on seats by using someone who will not be a good person to have around. That Very occasionally that comes up. Um, more often than not, we're very fortunate, and I get to, as director get to pick my companies. And uh, sometimes I said to you earlier that sometimes auditions are kind of the worst way to find mm-hmm. um, the cast members. I'm much more interested in seeing somebody perform, whether that's live on stage or on tape or whatever, mm-hmm. and then meet them. And the meeting of them is almost more important. If you can sing, you can sing. If you're a funny actor, you're a funny actor. I just give you funny lines, you'll be funny. But you've got to be part of the family. And that sounds like such a cliche, but it's absolutely true. And I believe that comes across to the audience. I believe if you have yeah. seven or eight people on stage who've had an absolute blast in rehearsals, have laughed themselves silly, mm-hmm. have supported each other, have had trying times and joyful times, all in that sort of five, four or five week rehearsal period leading up to a show, that very much is something I learned from um, reading about and understanding how people like the Muppet guys all worked together in the early days and formed this sort of this kind of weird ragtag band of people <laughs> with foam on their hands, you know. So that's <laughs> yeah. very, very much something that I um, believe because we, we know from experience that watching things like Muppets and Fraggles and what have you, that love comes across. And that it does, there's yeah. nothing else in the shop but somebody's hand. So there's something magical there. And it yeah. is, I think it is that sort of that sort of cooperation. He also was a very quiet man. So again, he's somebody else. Pollard could have a bloody good go out with a, with a mushroom <laughs> volivon, you know? Absolutely. He only really seemed to come out of his shell when he had a Muppet on his hand. And the thing I find fascinating, and I only learned this a couple of years ago, was because I've heard stories about other puppeteers and you get someone, for example, like Rod Hull. Do you remember Rod Hull with Emu? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So again, this is a story I've heard from people in the business, but Rod would, when he was doing Emu, would walk around with the Emu kind of tucked behind him. I'm doing it now, even though you can't see it, I need <laughs> you to know I'm actually doing it. So he would have the he would have the puppet on his right hand, and he would, as he was walking, he would tuck it behind him. So if he's walking from one place to another backstage, you didn't look at the puppet. You know, it was just tucked away. And then when he came out on stage, up the puppet came. 
the, the puppet was carried about in a plastic bag, a mm-hmm. Tesco bag or something. It was just, and and I always thought it was interesting how um, we never got to see the the puppeteers on things like the Muppets or Sesame yeah, Street. Yeah. And then I learned that actually that wasn't a thing. That wasn't them being precious. Um, uh, I went to see, very fortunate, I got to see the Muppets live at the O2 a couple of years I ago. I saw that show as well. It was oh just my God, it was breathtaking. And watching, because I thought, how are they going to do it? Are they, are they all going to be what they call a headboard? Are they all going to be behind the, the platform and only mm-hmm. we could just see their forearms? But no, they were there. They were whizzing about on chairs. We could see, we, we could choose to watch the puppeteer or watch the puppet. Yeah. And and that openness, I realised then watching lots of old videos of Jim on chat shows and and him sitting in conversation with Frank Oz, they would literally have a sports bag and the puppets were in it. There was nothing magical for him about the puppets. There was nothing amazing or or or, or otherworldly about the puppets. It was a bag of rags and he would mm-hmm. pick it up and he would make it magic and then he would just pull it off his arm and throw it into the bag. There was none of this kind of, we must put it in a felt-lined box and close, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which I always assumed would be the case on something yeah. like that. And I find that really refreshing because as a puppeteer, anything I've done has been in a room where somebody has a fake fur coat and you pick up the fur coat, and you put your arm down the sleeve and it becomes a mouth and you start messing about and you think, well, that's obviously a different league to what they were doing. And then you think, actually, no, it's not far removed from what they yeah. were doing. Um, and I love that about them. And that's a fairly new discovery. I, I learned a lot of that from um, Brian May Jones's book. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating. I don't think I've ever told you that uh, I, I I did say it on last week's podcast. So for any listeners, I apologize for sounding like a broken record every time Jim Henson comes up. But I was an extra in the last Muppet movie. So I got to sit <laughs> in the... I did tell me this. Did I tell you this? <laughs> I and think so. Tell me again. It's just amazing. The, what really struck me was, so I got to sit, you know how they're touring around the world and they go to Dublin. And yes. the weird thing was I just got this email saying, are you kind of ginger Irish and near enough to London? And I don't know how they got my details, but I'm so glad they emailed. Um, but I went along and we sat in this kind of fake theatre where we were watching this Muppet show in Dublin. But the thing that struck me was that in between takes, the Electric Mayhem were down in the the orchestra pit. And the Muppeteers between takes, you think they would just rest their arm. But they cared so much about how the Muppets were perceived that you just had kind of, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Teeth and Janice just having a little chat between takes and flicking through their sheet music. (laughs) <laughs> and you weren't seeing kind of Muppeteers resting between so they, were they were They were always alive the on. So yeah. then when it came to lunchtime and they took the Muppets off and left them on the chair, it was really disconcerting walking past the, the orchestra pit and just seeing Janice lying still on a chair. Oh, wow. Yeah. I kind of wanted to call yeah. an ambulance for. Yeah. But it was phenomenal just how much they cared about how they were perceived. That was something that really struck me about that. If, and what if, a brilliant legacy he Henson left, you know, and it, yeah. it goes on now too. I mean, I absolutely adored the Dark Crystal series that they did last year, and the um, Age of what do they call it? Um, oh, it was on Netflix. Age yeah, of something. Resistance. Was Age it? of Resistance. Ah, oh, it was phenomenal. And again, all all part of the legacy that Jim Henson left. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he's he is just so beloved for for such good reason. If Jim could bring one Muppet with him to the dinner party, who would you want him to bring along? Well, now, 
well, if it was one of Jim's puppets, Rolf the dog, who was the <laughs> puppet he had the longest association with, again, he might have to push Sullivan out of the way of the piano and give me a bit of, <laughs> a bit of um, four-figured honky-tonk. But, um, but if I'm absolutely honest, my favourite Muppet is Gonzo, and that's a Dave Gold's puppet. Yeah, um, yeah. So I don't know whether Jim could bring Gonzo. I always said, I'm not starstruck very often. I, I'm fortunate enough to get to work with some big names in my career, but if I ever met Shirley Bassey or Gonzo. <laughs> uh, those are the two who would leave me speechless. I wouldn't know what to say. Um, I've never met either of them. Uh, I've seen them both in concert, uh, but I've never yeah. met either of them. So if Jim could bring anyone, you might have to sneak Dave Gulls in through the back gate of the garden so that I could have a chat with Gonzo. I think we could lie that. I think that would be a very, a very good thing to do. Well, Jim Henson is is a phenomenal fourth guest. And your last guest is someone else who's very directly influenced your work. Uh, you're inviting, we've mentioned Pacoon a few times throughout the podcast. You are currently working on a new version of a Spike Milligan production. You're inviting Spike Milligan to your dinner party. Yes, I am. I am inviting Spike, um, who was on the Muppets Series 5. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a Muppets guest at Series 5, and my friend Jane, who is um, Spike's daughter, mm -hmm. as a child, got to go on set uh, of the Muppets oh my God. Um, when her dad was the special guest, and she got into terrible trouble for putting on Miss Piggy. <laughs> she, did. She, picked up, she picked up Miss Piggy from the rack, put her hand in it, and got told off, you do not put your hand inside the Muppets. But she was oh, a kid. Wow. But anyway, she, that still haunts her. But yes, I'm going to invite Spike. <laughs> I did meet Spike. I did know Spike briefly. He was already a very elderly man by the time I'd met him. Um, I met him in 2000 and, now hold on a minute, uh, 1998, and he died in 2002. So he right. was, was, was quite decrepit at the time I met him. But, yeah. I, but I, I'd like to have him around because he, uh, well, first of all, again, he would shock a few of the other guests that I have there. I mean, <laughs> looking at the list, apart from Pollard, I've got Barry and, and Henson, both of whom are <laughs> quiet people. Sullivan's playing the piano. Um, so I think Spike and Sue might um, might have a bit of a, a, a party of their own. He, he was, a, he was a, I have a lot of love for Spike. I, I know the family very well. Uh, and um, uh, as you say, I, I worked on Pacoon. I'm now working on uh, a stage version of his um, play, a play of um, his war memoir, Adolf Hitler, My Part in His Downfall. Yeah. Uh, which I was asked to write by Norma Farnes, who was Spike's manager, who's since passed away. I'm oh. continuing to work on it because the company Spike Milligan Productions, which was Spike's company, is now being run by the family, by Jane and Sule and Dora. Oh, okay. Um, who, who I know. So um, so I'm continuing to work on that. Again, we were, it was meant to be done at some point this year. That's on hold for now. But but um, I am very well versed in all things Spike. Um, um, I think when I met him, I went to, because he was, he could be curmudgeonly, I went <laughs> to reach for his arm. I think Jane said, Daddy, this is Paul. And I went to reach for his arm to shake his hand. And yeah. he said, Get your filthy hand off my dirty arm, <laughs> um, which I've since learned was something he just said, and he would just go and shake his hand anyway. But I think, I mean, I was in his twenties, something. I, I probably was quite put off by that. But that would but be he, he has, yeah. he's fascinated me for a long time. Uh, since then, since that point, and um, 
a kind of sentimentality with me having Spike there. I wouldn't talk to him about work. I wouldn't talk to him about anything like that. But, I, mm. you know, um, I'd love to be able to pass on some messages to him from his loved ones if he was there. Oh, and, yeah. um, you know, little things like that and, and get some stories from him that I could take back and um, his side of things that the kids remember and what have you he yeah. I, I didn't know him well at all I mean I only met him once or twice but he but I I do feel like he is he is my friend's dad and yeah and I think of him in that way and it's always a bit of a shock when his name crops up on something on the telly or he was the answer on a quiz or something I I still get that kind of uh, moment where I think that's Jane's dad oh yeah of course that but he is Spike Milligan yeah and the kids yeah. have an interesting I say the kids I mean these are all grown-ass men and women but um, <laughs> they have a very interesting way of talking about him when when they're talking about him that he's dad but when we're talking about work he's Spike uh, you know, Spike, so Spike wasn't his real name. Spike was the name he was given in the army. He was Terence. But so, uh-huh. you know, Spike spoke this and Spike did that and Spike wanted this and this has to be about Spike. That's different than them saying, you know, oh, dad used to do this or that's where dad used to get his bread from or wherever. Because we all live in London now, not a stone's throw from where they all grew up. So yeah. I live just down the road from two of his sisters two of his daughters one laura lives in australia but jane and celia live fairly near me and the house they all grew up in is further up the road and i can't walk anywhere in this part of london without passing a blue plaque that is spike lived here or yeah, this yeah. way to spike statue this is milligan land that we're in and it's a fantastic land to be in well the um, other fascinating thing about him is that uh he he essentially chose irishness he chose to be irish and well, then yes. you know, born in India, um, and kind of moved to London, but made the decision to get his Irish passport, and it was something he was very proud of, wasn't it? He was, he was. He he um he came back from India. His father was in the Indian Army. They he was discharged. They came back to London, and uh, because his father was originally Irish from Sligo, they decided Milligan, Spike wasn't um, going to get a British passport. So in true Spike fashion, he said, "F you." <laughs> and his, his story is that he phoned up the Irish consulate and said, I'd like a passport. And they said, good, we're looking for people. <laughs> <laughs> so that is kind of how he got his Irishness through his uh, heritage. And w- one of the great interesting things about working on Pakun, when we worked on Pakun, which is the story about how the Irish border was drawn yeah. and the idea that the border falls through a little village in Sligo. Where, uh, you know, and so one half of the church is in one is in the north and the other half is in the south. And <laughs> there's only one corner of the pub that's in the north of Ireland where drink is 30% cheaper. All of these kind of great guys. <laughs> but it was set in a little village called Pakun that he made up. But actually he's populated it with people who he guesses are his ancestors. The lead character is called Dan Milligan, who, you know, isn't Spike, but it's somebody Spike imagines is yeah. one of his family living there. And yeah. it's a place full of idiots. I mean, for Spike, the world was full of <laughs> idiots and the sooner we all realize that and my god isn't even proven true um, and the, yeah. the sooner you just accept that this is a great you know if i've learned anything from spike it's this the minute you can assume the world is just and accept that the world is just full of idiots the better you can just get on with things you know kind of make sense know, of things a bit quicker i can watch anybody on the news now spiting anything because i just go idiot 
idiot. <laughs> and, you know, when you come across someone who's not an idiot, be surprised, but don't do it the other way around. And that's, that's what Spike did. All of his comedy is about laughing at authority and you know, pulling the rug out of the, uh, the people in power. It's all about the fact that the idiots are in charge. And, yeah. and that's a great thing to take with you through life. Oh, he's he's so quotable and so I mean just so many great gags. He was also for a time a jazz musician. And do you see any kind of sense of that kind of freeform musicality in his writing? Yes, that's his. He started off as a musician. He was a trumpeter in the army. He, um, well, a jazz trumpeter. He took a trumpet with him to the army as a kid. Right. He was eighteen or nineteen when he was. Um, conscripted into the army and they formed this is all in the first book that I'm currently looking at mm-hmm. they formed a band called the Boys of Battery B and they had a little jazz band and there, you're absolutely right there is something about the free form um, kind of although they did cover versions of things that dances of course that's mm-hmm. what they were paid for but they really loved to scat and jazz and just riff on jazz and that is that kind of living note to note is exactly what he did in his comedy, and that's how his brain worked. I mean, that was the kind of rapid fire, keep moving. Did that not work? Keep going, keep going. That's mm-hmm. that's what jazz is. And yes, if his style of writing and style of comedy was anything, it was jazz. Because it was shortly after that period in his life, he went straight into writing The Goons, which is what kind of set up his style yeah. and introduced yeah. that style of comedy to the world because it hadn't existed before. And then, obviously, without that, there's no Monty Python. There's no, I mean, so yeah, much. I mean, of, you can't imagine because, uh, you know, Spike didn't invent comedy. He didn't even invent radio comedy. But what he did was he learned to package it the way Spike packaged radio comedy mm-hmm. um, as this kind of, you know, 25 minute uh, train of thought with a break for some music and a man on a mouth organ and then back to some more wacky comedy and people doing funny voices and that that hadn't been done before and it certainly hadn't been packaged in a kind of for the next 25 minutes anything can happen you know we yeah. always say spike spike broke the fourth wall but in a sense he did but in a way spike broke all the walls he didn't like walls spike's <laughs> first job at any medium radio television cinema books whatever he did was to work out where the four walls are and then flatten them and then that's why you end up with a book like Bakun, where the, the, the reading voice, the narrator, the voice inside your head as you're reading it suddenly speaks to you. I don't like this anymore. I'm going off to page 56. It says, you know, <laughs> things like that. That's exactly the same as the goons when somebody says, what, what, what? What's happening next? And boom, explode. Everything ends in an explosion. Or on the TV, the Q series, you know, there's no tagline to a sketch. They all look at the camera and go, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? It's all madness. It's all a kind of free form. But yeah, and all of those are form breaking. And I guess that's what Spike was. And he did with poetry too. You know, anything yeah. he touched, he, he worked out what the rules were and then worked out how to avoid them. And and um, that is the, I think, the through thought through everything that he did. Um, uh, all forms of his career. And he did continue to work on music. I mean, he wrote songs, he wrote poems. Um, he continued to play the trumpet. The trumpet still exists. The trumpet oh. is still alive and well, yeah. The trumpet is alive and well. And um, I've even got some audio recordings of um, never before heard audio recordings of Spike and his band playing. Oh, wow. Yeah, back in the back in the day in the in the war era, he's kept these old recordings that I've got access through through the family and through Spike Milligan production. So there's a lot of material going into the show that um, is a world first, you know. When Norma died and the old office was cleared, 
so much material was discovered that had been filed away and kept safe. And um, the family are only now getting to go through it all to work out what is what things are. That's so so um, exciting. To have that kind of insight into him is another reason why I think um, he would make great dinner guests because I think that there's a lot of stuff that I'd like to go, what did you mean by that? Or, yeah, you know. yeah. What and do you I think he think would that, make of the stage productions? Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I hope he loves them. Sile, uh, who um, came to see the show, Sile's uh, his youngest of the, uh, sorry, second, the middle daughter. Yeah. And Sile did get to see Bakun in Leicester Square, actually, where you saw it. And she said to me, Dad would have loved this. Um, and it's better than the book. And I said, well, gosh, don't say that. I don't, want, I don't want that on the poster. That's quite um, quite, quite the thing. And then Jane, um, Jane had been on tour. Because Jane's an actress. So she had been yeah. on tour when we did it in Leicester Square. But when we did it again for the final tour, we finished somewhere in Dublin and Jane flew over to see it. And, oh, lovely. Uh, she loved it. She, she just said dad would have been absolutely thrilled with that. And that's all I needed to hear. Yeah, you can't really get a higher compliment. Uh, you know, I'm that, never going to know whether J.M. Barry enjoyed Peter Pan. I don't think he would because he didn't, you know, it wasn't <laughs> his show. Um, you know, I don't know. So many writers that I've, uh, whose material I've worked on, I would never know that. But to know that um, something I've written, and I did, uh, he did see me in a show once. This is my little oh. claim to fame. I was doing a play, a musical with Jane. She was my girlfriend in this musical in Basingstoke, I think, about 1998. Right. And um, I had a funny bit to do where the director had come up with this idea that my character was trying to woo one of the girls, and I was going to do it by doing some sexy dancing. <laughs> so the music of the live band was playing, and I was doing sexy dancing. But, of course, it was funny dancing. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so the audience is roaring with laughter, and I suddenly remember Spike is in, and so I did a bit of Irish dancing, just apropos nothing. <laughs> so in the middle of this nightclub in 1960s Manchester, where we're meant to be dancing to Motown and Tamla Hits, yeah. this strange little Mancunian man that I was playing suddenly did some Irish dancing <laughs> to win the girl. And I saw Spike's head go back, and I thought, well, I've either killed him <laughs> or... Or he's found that funny, and thankfully he found it funny. And Jane oh, said wow. to him afterwards, and this is how cantankerous he could be, he would say, she said, uh, this was after the dirty arm comment, and he yeah. said, she said, well, Paul, um, Paul was the musical director, which I also was, musical director, and this was a, what we call now a jukebox show, it was lots of famous Motown hits, mm-hmm. and Spike just looked at me and went, who wrote that bloody awful music? <laughs> knowing full well that it was uh, and I've used that quote actually on a number of my um, <laughs> number of my posters ever since so if I've got a new show opening I always like to slip in somewhere in the in the book you know the who wrote that bloody awful music Spike Milligan <laughs> um, as uh, a comment on my work oh wow you're you're so lucky to to have met him and and yeah how special to to have his family kind of confirm that about the the shows that you've been involved with that you would have enjoyed them i mean all of your guests so far even jm barry who maybe sounds like he would have been a bit difficult uh, i think with with sue pollard there she'd she'd do a job at bringing him out of his shell arthur sullivan on the piano jim henson just being lovely and spike that is the makings of an extraordinary night it the is, and if you thing... think about it, I'm just looking at the list now and thinking, of course, J.M. Barry and Arthur Sullivan would know each other 
because they were around at the same time and I, there oh, was evidence yeah. that they had dinner a few times. Jim Henson and Spike Milligan knew each other because Spike did their Muppets. Of course, um, yeah. And at least, at least one variety performance. So actually, and Sue, I'm sure, I, I don't know who, which of them Sue knew. She's not old enough to have known Arthur Sullivan or J.M. Barry, but she might well have known Henson. And I'm almost sure she at least met Spike more than, you know, a few times. So th- there is some conversation, as you can see, already happening there. And what's interesting about that is it goes back to that sort of philosophy you have with your casts as well. Back to what you were saying while we were talking about Jim, that it's nice to have a group that that kind of are already friendly and close and that that kind of carries over into the work. I think you've already got the makings of a very familiar and cosy dinner party. I've done that subconsciously, so that's good. That's how good you've gotten at doing it, Paul. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the only thing left to decide now is what you would be cooking for your guests. So first of all, you, you mentioned earlier you you don't do small dishes so there'd be plenty there for people uh you you've got some dietary requirements you're uh, gluten intolerant yes i'm celiac so everything there would be gluten-free but i do pride myself in nobody ever knowing that um and i also (laughs) yes i'm also Oh, the past couple of years been dairy intolerant so oh, right. there won't be a cheese board because vegan cheese is nobody's friend um, <laughs> uh, and believe me i've tried everything but um but i would be providing uh actual dairy products for my guests i wouldn't i'd, I'd subject them to gluten-free because nobody knows but i think yeah. that i would i would be including dairy in the in the guests for my food uh, food for my guests that's very good of you so what would you what would you be throwing together for them I think actually looking at them and um, knowing that the party's in the garden, I think we would do a big grill out. I think we'd do a big barbecue grill out. Uh, Apart from anything else, the idea of J.M. Barry tackling a sweet and sour pork rib (laughs) and getting it all over his, you know, and Arthur (laughs) Sullivan with a hot dog and stuff. All of this appeals to me. I would do some vegan stuff. Um, uh, because Spike occasionally was certainly vegetarian. Yeah. Um, don't know about the others. Sue eats little and often, so I would do lots of smaller sausages and bits of chicken and things like that. But basically, imagine a Toby Carvery uh, sort of <laughs> harvester salad bar, a harvester salad bar, and then a grill out that has, um, you know, bits of uh, certainly some fish. I love fish. There's some fish and um, different kinds of meats and sausages and chicken and things like that. And then it is a kind of, what can I get you, you know? And also, get up and help yourselves. It's very much that kind of affair. Oh, it sounds just I want this to happen nice. So tell me, (laughs) how are you going to make this happen? Because I believe that's part of it. This is the guilt that I'm left with at the end of every episode. Everybody's already just described the most perfect night of their lives. And then I sort of have to finish it by saying, oh, well, it was nice to have thought about it at least. So I'm going to go down and have a cup of tea and walk the dog. And <laughs> this party is never happening. <laughs> well, I hope even just talking about it at least was filled some of the gap of it not actually happening. It has, um, I feel I'm exhausted. I feel like I've been to this party. Yeah. <laughs> it's. I mean, I just love hearing from from people about the, the people that inspire them most and your guests are just so fascinating um and and knowing you as i do as well it's sort of extra lovely for me to i feel like i've gotten to know you a little bit better even talking about these people now 
Um, Paul, thank you so, so much for taking the time to do this. It's been so lovely uh, talking to you. You're very welcome. And uh, yeah, I hope to see you when when all this nastiness goes away. I hope to see you and some of your lovely productions in lovely theatres full of packed, happy audiences very, very soon. That would indeed be lovely. And we will do a garden party. I know from that list of five, there's at least one I can get there. Yes. So we'll, we'll have that and four <laughs> cardboard cutouts. That's what we'll try and do. That sounds like a great plan. Paul, thank you and we'll speak again soon. Speak soon. Cheers. Bye-bye. So there we go. That was the dream dinner party of Paul Boyd. A really fascinating group of guests there. I'm having so much fun chatting to people every week about the people that inspire them most. I hope you're enjoying it too. If you are, We'd really love it if you'd like, subscribe, rate, share, tweet about, shout about. Just generally help us get the word out about the podcast. We'd love to reach as wide an audience with the podcast as possible. And you can really help us out with doing that. If you want to hear any more from me, you can check out the Jericho Comedy Podcast out every Monday. Or visit www.connormcreynolds.com for more of my radio, podcast, writing and comedy work. I'll be back next week with another brilliant guest chatting all about their dream dinner party. But until then, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you again. Bye-bye.